All right. Tom, welcome back. Guys, welcome back Thank to the Legacy Liftoff Episode 2, where we discuss uh, David and Goliath this week, man. So, Tom, do you have any uh, just quick intro remarks on David and the Goliath? Yeah, I mean, just a quick quick little sum up of the background. I'm sure everyone's heard of David and Goliath and the whole notion of David, the, the shepherd boy who beats the giant Goliath in, in an unprecedented one-on-one battle. And so the highlight of the story, it, it kind of opens with David and Goliath and the author, Malcolm Gladwell, kind of goes into the the nitty gritty of the story. But like for, for the sake of our, our stream today, we're just going to real quick. David is he's a shepherd. He herds sheep and he jumps into this valley gorge, he fights a one on one battle with a seven, six giant named Goliath. And everyone thinks he's going to lose because he's this little skinny dude versus this gigantic, huge monster-shaped guy who's striking fear into the opposing army. Long story short, David comes in, hits him with some shit, snatches his sword up, and beheads Goliath. And then he is the victor of the battle and just shocks everyone. Mm. So this whole notion for, for the author is advantages or what is perceived to be an advantage might not actually be an advantage and then a perceived weakness might not be an actual weakness if you know how to use it to your advantage so that's the whole underlying context of what he ends up talking about throughout the entire book is how something is perceived as one thing but it can actually be another thing and just because it's perceived as one thing doesn't mean it's exactly what meets the eye absolutely that definitely was a reoccurring, um, I guess, just theme throughout the whole book, man. So, first off, you, you want to go through uh, just a point that maybe you enjoyed about the book or, or something that stood out to you, you know, like uh, within the chapters of reading? I mean, the one thing that I have written down that I think kind of circles the entire book itself is the idea of the U-shaped curve, mm. where everything basically life isn't linear it doesn't move in a straight line or an exponential thing where you start at one point and you constantly grow to the end point it's um it kind of like is a bell shape it kind of goes up to the peak it plateaus it flattens out and then it comes down so he uses that example as a as basically the storytelling narrative for all of his short little biographies i guess if you Mm -hmm. want to call them because that's how he kind of wrote the book it's um he introduces the idea, then he uses narratives from life or people he's interviewed and kind kind of helps describe the, the U-shaped phenomena is what I'd, I'd call it. So what he talked about was on the left side of the bell is when you have nothing, right? It's when you have nothing or more of something, it benefits you up until the point where you plateau. Mm-hmm. Once you plateau, it doesn't matter how much you get of something or how little of something you do or get. It just stays the same. Right. And then on the bottom half of that, which is the right side, which is the more you have of something or the more you do of something, the less pleasure, the less benefit or the less it seems to be effective. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was very interesting that it was kind of described in that sense. That Because, you, you know, you think about life and you don't think of it as as that kind of shape you know what i mean like the more money you have the the better you feel the more things you can get the happier you think you would be the less money you have obviously the less happy the less things you you get you know what i mean it's it's a very strong knock on the idea of uh 
materialism and being materialistic and having things for yourself. For but sure. What do you think about that? Because I know, I know he went through that whole entire book talking a lot about material items, having yeah. things, not having things. Um. So, I, I I tend to agree. I guess right. Like you don't think of you don't think about it sometimes because you may not experience it. Like I I couldn't speak on a having a lot of money perspective because you know I, I wasn't mm-hmm. raised with a lot of money or 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 a lot of material things early on. Right. Anyway. Um. So I think he's right to a to a heavy extent. It's like if you don't have it, you kind of can't relate. But when you do have whatever situation you have, you can kind of be like, oh, like you know, I wish I had this. I I wish I didn't have that, or whatever the case may be. More more times than less, it's like, oh, I wish I had this nice car, this nice house, whatever the case may be. So, but you can only have it up until a certain point where it doesn't make you happy anymore, you know. And I think we can both agree. It's like material things are really nice to have and to get and to acquire and to achieve. But yeah. the feeling diminishes. That happiness really diminishes kind of fast, like that I find in my life. It's just like, oh, like I really want this thing. I really want it. You work so hard to get it. You get it. And then it's like, oh, shit. Like, that's it. Like, I've been waiting this whole time. The buildup was more, mm-hmm. was, was heavier than actually having it and, and, and being happy about it, you know? Would you tend to agree with that? Or right. do you have a different perspective in, in regards to that? A note, I found it interesting that he threw a number out. Um, so the date the book was published, was in 2015 mm-hmm. and he said according to studies he did $75,000 as a household income was the the plateau point was where if you had you know another $10,000 you weren't any happier or if you had less than $10,000 you weren't any happier either that's 75k was brown and if a household had $75,000 it'd be considered you know good you're good yeah so in today's after you calculate for inflation in today's day and age, that's $88,000. Okay. So based on that, he's kind of saying if you're a household with $88,000, you should be good. Like have just enough of what you want, but not everything that you want where you're kind of happy with the, the way he gave the example was like with kids, yeah. you know what I mean? So if you're like the, the ability to say, no, we can't and no, we won't is uh is where he kind of uses that parallel it's kind of like no we can't afford that and the mm-hmm. kid understands we don't have the means to get it okay versus no we won't basically like no we have the means but we're deciding not to get it exactly which is i thought was interesting in in the sense of you know growing up same kind of thing you always want something as a kid and growing up if you can relate kind of you see, all right, we don't have the means, we don't have the money. My mom works all day, all night. My parents work all day, all night, and we're just making ends meet. I'm full, I'm happy, I'm good. Yeah. Right. Versus his example of a rich kid who goes, Well, I want this. And the parents go, Well, no, we can't. But then you have a Porsche, you got a G Wagon, you got you're living in Beverly Hills. What do you mean you can't? Like, yeah, why can't yeah. you? Like we can afford it. So the, his notion of using parenting to kind of um, illustrate that point kind of made made a lot, a lot of sense. Because, again, I, growing up, I didn't have much, you know what I mean? And then it kind of gives you that insight into, you know, the upper echelon or the upper class of how, how they kind of perceive a, a struggle on the other end of it. You know what yeah. I mean? So that was just something I found hmm. interesting. You got any thoughts on that? It's... I don't know, man. It's crazy because it's like uh, the author, like you said, mentioned kind of both perspectives, somebody who has Mm -hmm. and then somebody who doesn't. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think in both situations, like there are lessons to be taught and learned. And it's hard to say like, oh, like I would prefer to be here or prefer to be there. But I feel like whatever cards you're dealt with, you, you kind of just, you know, you take it one day at a time and you, and you kind of make the best you can. Because like just because you have money doesn't mean that your life will be better. Right. Like you, mm-hmm. your money can co- your family can come into money and, and you're, you can still lack, you know, like a, a healthy relationship with them. You can lack um, any, anything like that, you know, like time being spent with you, like your parents can make more money, but now they're working more. They're not hanging out with you as much as you would like. Or maybe mm-hmm. you don't have money, but that relationship is great, right? Like your parents, you're often talking, you guys are really connected, you guys bond. Like there's definitely a yin and yang, right? Like a, a little push and pull when it comes to stuff like that. And I think the author really mentions, you know, the benefits and the, the, the pros and the cons for both. So right. um, I, I can I definitely think- see it, yeah. I think that's what his whole the whole push on the book is basically. I'll show you A and I'll show you B, mm-hmm. but you really want to find that good sweet spot, and the sweet spot's really hard to find sometimes. For um, sure. Just on this topic, and then we could probably move on to another one. Um, I remember seeing a a post on Instagram or something, and it was like with Shaq, and it was like talking about all the money he has, and he yeah. was like, "Listen, like I'm rich, they're not rich, like yeah. in, in like regards to his kids, yeah. like I'm the rich one, they're not rich, like they." So that kind of embarks on the um, the whole notion of what he talks about is where individuals struggle growing up and they use that struggle to kind of strive and push them forward to do better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then they get all these riches because they worked their ass off. They busted their ass. They did everything they had to do to make money, right? Yeah. And then at a certain point – this is something everyone can relate to. It's like, you know, you want to give your kids what you didn't have or, Mm -hmm. you know, like if you didn't have X, Y, and Z, you're like, I'm going to bust my ass, work my ass off, make money for my kid not to go through the same struggle I went through. Yeah. But then at that point they have a disconnect. You know, Mm -hmm. I think he mentions like that disconnect really is they, they have a lack of ambition at a certain standpoint. Mm -hmm. They, they lose some confidence. They don't understand like the nitty gritty and I think he really hammers that point home when you dist- I, I forget who who the character was. I think he was describing a a movie star or a director or something of that caliber where he mm-hmm. was basically he worked his way all the way up and then he's like super rich, super loaded now. And then he doesn't want his kids to go through the same struggle as he did, but he wants them to understand the the value of the money that he had to work for. He wants them to understand that that hard work can equal something. And I think that's something he mentions the the wealthy at least struggle with they have a hard time kind of relaying that message especially those who don't come from wealth you know what i mean yeah and i think i think a lot of people end up end up in that cycle where it's like you know i work really hard i'm gonna spoil my kids i'm gonna give them everything they want i mean i see what friends now and it's it's a reoccurring theme and you really do wonder after reading that section whether or not like damn do i really want to spoil my kids and give them everything or do i want to kind of like be a little hard ass and just be a little bit extra and just kind of like smack them upside down and give them a little yeah 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 it's that's a point that i think he really that really like sat with me because i think about like obviously i think about what when i have kids how the fuck do i raise them you know what the hell do i do right i'm like yeah like i got i did all this stuff like i'm obviously going to try to give them something i don't want them growing up in the hood and i don't want them you know trying to struggle and make make ends meet i don't want them to come up to me and be like can i get 20 dollars?" and i go i don't got 20 dollars to give you like yeah. you know what i mean it's kind of it's it's an interesting perspective honestly 
It's you know it's funny, right? Like we're both um we we share this in common. We're both Vietnamese Americans, first generation college students, correct? Like mm-hmm. am I correct in saying that? Yep. And yep. um you know, it, we can kind of relate in regards to this because I'm sure our parents migrated here at, at around the same mm-hmm. time, right? During the war or after the war. And right, yep. um sometimes as ambitious as I feel I am, Sometimes I feel like I'm a result of that, right? Because I'm not struggling in any way compared to how our parents struggled, right? When they tell you yep. about stories of like walking to fucking school and it's like, oh, I went through the snowstorm, barefoot, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. swam for two miles. Like, well, we're not right, doing right. that stuff, you know? And I know I'm making a joke out of it, but in real- it's reality, right? Like everything that surrounds that kind of story, that that kind of symbolism, our parents went through much, much more and sacrifice a lot for us. And mm-hmm. it's hard because as a parent, like you said, you, we think about these things. I think about this often. H- how am I going to have a balance where I spoil my kids, but I also teach them the lessons that they need to learn in regards to money, in regards to life? Like you kind of don't learn some of those things if you don't experience it. So you wouldn't know why it, why I'm telling you to shut the lights off if you didn't go a week without electricity, right? You wouldn't know. Exactly. Um, like, Oh, like, why should I turn the heat on only when I need it if you weren't opening the stove to warm yourself, your your hands up during the winter? Like, you wouldn't know that shit, right? So mm-hmm. it's definitely a um, a conflict, man, that we have to decide as men when we have children, you know? Uh, but we'll yep. figure it out, dude. We'll figure it out for sure. Yeah, dude. It's funny because you mentioned that because I remember <laughs> the book. He, the guy mentioned something like that. He was like, when we use too much electricity, my dad would show me the electric bill and like, this is how much you use this month, like the fuck yeah. are you doing and, and it really puts you know a perspective on things so at nine you're worried about the electricity so yeah. it's going to build you different but i think there's a a good give and take with that like at a certain point is hammering down which is i think he kind of emphasizes this in the book really yeah. like if you hammer down one thing too much like at a certain point as a child it might just fuck with your head you know mm-hmm. what i mean so it's finding that that key balance is like really really hard but the piggyback off of what we were just talking about and pushing it on to um a point he mentions later on in the book yeah. which is um the, re- the the remote misses right mm. that's basically a a near death encounter or some crazy shit happening to you and you come out of it unscathed yeah. right so the whole notion of if you come out of a remote miss unscathed you feel like Teflon. You know what I mean? Nothing can mess with you. Doesn't matter how bad a situation gets. Doesn't matter how rough the storm is. You fucking, you made it through. It's like making it through like the great flood from Noah's Ark and you just come out of that shit and you're like, God can't touch me. Yeah, Nobody yeah. can touch me. So he gave a lot of examples of that and how like psychologically that messes with you. It makes you feel like you're you're invincible. You know, an example yeah. he gave was during the civil rights where I forget the guy's name, but he was in a house bombing where the KKK came and bombed his house and he came out of it alive. And after that point, it didn't matter what happened to him. He just stood up for everything. It didn't matter how many times he was beaten, didn't matter how many times he was bruised. And it just shows the psychological effect of a near miss or like when something crazy is happening to you. If you can get through the storm, it doesn't matter how many storms you go through after that. Mm. So kind of like our parents, you know what I mean? Going through, what, what, regardless of the means in which they came here, whether it be through a refugee camp, whether it be through some sort of government sponsorship, regardless of which, you know what I mean? 
them going from a underdeveloped country to the most developed country per se in the world that just means they made it you know what i mean it didn't matter what happened and they got there and so the struggles that they go through day in and day out and as they bestow that on their kids it's just it just shows that you know when you get through the toughest times of your life Mm -hmm. you can make it through anything else after that doesn't matter how tough it is because you've gone through psychologically the worst possible thing and it's kind of like yeah it ain't shit after that you know what i mean and i think that was i think that was really really compelling that he really harped on that point where he said listen if you escape it's basically if you escape death you feel as though you can look death in the eye yeah and i like the characters and the stories he used really highlighted that fact was listen it doesn't matter (laughs) it doesn't matter how rough it gets yeah you know I mean, like this, uh, just that civil rights notion. I made it through a bombing. Like I'm, I'm good. Like my house fell on me. Like what else are you gonna do to me than try to take my life and not succeed? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I've made it. So I don't know. Maybe it's that notion, the notion of making it. It doesn't matter whether it be your life, whether it be your career, whether it be anything you try to do. It's like if you make it, if you made it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's funny because when we, when you tell me about that story and I, while I was reading, I think about like, there's a Bible verse. I'm not going to quote it and act like I know, but essentially like the, the, the verse says something like, you know, I'm protected by this being, right? I'm protected by God and any, mm-hmm. any enemy harm again, like aimed against me is not going to work. That's the, that's the gist. And I think of it right. like that too, right? Like in all of these examples he gave in the book, especially the civil rights one that you mentioned, there are people trying to harm these people, right? Whether it be the German bombings that he mentioned or the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. like bombing the, his house because he wanted to, he wanted his daughter to go to an all-white school, like stuff like that. It's all of these people trying to harm people and trying to do like a certain event or an act to psychologically screw them up, physically screw them up. But then they come out on top and they come out even stronger mm-hmm. than when they came, came into it. So for instance, that, that guy you mentioned, the one who survived the bombing, he came out of there like, yo, it doesn't matter what you do to me. I'm, like you said, untouchable. I have a purpose. Um, this is my goal. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep moving forward until it's completed. You cannot touch me. Now, mm-hmm. it's not like they couldn't touch him physically because they laid, they laid hands on him. Oh, but they they did. <laughs> right? But as much as they laid him down, he got back up stronger. And that's what I yep. really respect about that symbolism on that chapter and in those stories that they, he mentioned. Just like mm-hmm. you said, people who have a remote closeness to like to to death, to harm and survive, similar to our parents, similar to many people who experience these traumatic uh experiences, they come out on top, man, and they come out stronger. So it's it's almost like what you don't, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Makes what doesn't stronger. kill you makes you stronger. You know, and that's the perfect example there. I'm um, trying to pull up a um. Just on that note, there's a Japanese proverb, right? It says, mm-hmm. "All seven times and stand up eight. So Ooh, it's kind of like right. that. Doesn't right. matter how many times you get knocked down, as long as you stand up that next time. Those seven times it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, sure, you knocked me down, you knocked me off my course. Yeah, but. I can fucking maneuver my way back and get to it and keep on moving. Doesn't matter what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. So 
That's if, uh, I heard if you could look up, you can get up, man. That's one of my favorite ones too. That's you know a good I mean? one. That's yeah. A good so, one. yo, we could go on about like this this kind of stuff because there's so many that, like parallels, right. you know. Um, yeah. But there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about. I'm very interested in what you have to say about it, and it's uh-huh. it was a big chapter. It was a little early on in the book about the basketball team, the girls' basketball team, okay. who went to the national championships and they lost in the championships, unfortunately, but. Uh, they won basically because of their press, their full court press. And I wanted mm-hmm. to see if, like, you know, you had some symbolisms during that. Uh, you found any symbolisms or metaphors, you know, that you wanted to discuss. Right. See, it's funny because I have that part written down too because I know you played ball growing yeah, up in high yeah. school and all that. So I thought that was very relatable to you. But it that whole notion of – so how he described the story was nobody ever tried to run the full court press all day, all game, and try to, like, really bug people. You know what I mean? Yep. And that just really – it highlighted one thing, like just because someone thinks something is impossible doesn't mean it's impossible yeah. or improbable. Like that and that really that example alone really showed that, you know, the underdog, if using the right tools, they may or may like they didn't win the finals, yeah. but it got them all the way to that point. You know what I mean? It's kind of doing something different. That no one ever expected you to do, mm. no one ever expected anything of you, and just implementing it all at once kind of really just shook the landscape. You know what I mean? And I think it's funny because I drew the. I think this is how he ended up tying the book. To, I remember us or before we started the stream, we talked about how we tried to tie things together, and it felt like the ending kind of trailed off. Yeah. But now that we're talking about it, I feel as though he kind of tied it together. If towards the end of the book, I think it was chapter nine or ten. He mentions um, guerrilla warfare, mm-hmm. right? During a certain point in time, it's like, yeah, if you got a big army, I'm going to just send my guys after you. We'll figure it out. We'll duke it out. But then the introduction of guerrilla warfare, like, and he used the Viet Cong as a good example. And it's, yes. it's just so funny that he used the Viet Cong as an example. Yeah, yeah. These. But that ties into the, what I think, it ties into the full court press idea. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? We, it's an army versus an army, a basketball team versus a basketball team. We know we're substantially smaller, undersized, not as skilled, not as ready and not as prepared. But, you know, we have this tactic. We're going to we're going to train using this tactic. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. all right, we're going to I'm gonna make sure my players have the stamina. I'm going to make sure my players can run up and down the court. I'm going to make sure they're ready and they play physical. Same thing with guerrilla warfare. It's like, all right. We're going to train using guerrilla warfare. We're going to hide our guns under our beds. We're going to blend in with civilians and we're going to hit them when they least expect it. So using the full court press as an example, he had a floater, I think, which is actually his daughter was a floater on that. She didn't guard the inbounder and she basically was just floating around Yep. and and come up, get a pick, get a steal, like guard, double team, and she'll play that role. And I think in guerrilla warfare, it's kind of like the same thing where civilians are blending in with the whoever you know what i mean the the gorilla warriors and then it's kind of when you least expect it she comes in for a steal and when you least expect it they hit you where it hurts they hit you a perfect example is the vietnam war of guerrilla warfare as sad as it is it's um when everybody kind of like played down and they started celebrating thud which is lunar new year and then the Viet Cong said fuck it we're gonna strike today like it's a holiday like you're expecting everyone to chill out and like you know exert religious holidays and play by the rules and they said fuck that we're going in and it just shook everything to its core. So 
interestingly enough, as we talk about this, I find the parallels between the beginning and the ending of the yeah. book and how it's starting to tie together. And maybe now I don't hate the book as much. But <laughs> I still feel he could have did a better job summing it up, you know? Um, oh, hands down. You're right, though. Yeah, you're you're for sure right. How about this, though? Like, uh, another, like, I guess... Uh, idea that I see that relates to the basketball too. So this mm-hmm. coach, he wasn't like a. I, I don't think he even played basketball growing up, if nope. I'm not mistaken, right? And he just kind of came cricket. with this cricket. Okay, exactly. Cricket and soccer came with a very guy, different mindset, very different strategy, mm-hmm. and people were hating on him, right? People were hating, and it, mm-hmm. it ties into another concept that the book is really big on, and it's basically like when you're a conformer. You kind of can't make the changes, right? You can't make like huge impact because you're conforming to society. You're conforming to all of their ideas. But the book was big on saying these people with dyslexia, these people who are outliers, these people who are disruptive in society, they tend to make the biggest impact. And I wanted to hear what you had to say about that because that ties right into the basketball thing where the coach was a disruptor. He was not like right. your, you know, he wasn't the, the kid that grew up playing all-star ball all, all out through his life. No, he, he mm-hmm. came in, he, he took a team of less than talented kids, right? Just hard workers, uh, kids who were willing to put the effort in, the conditioning in. And he built an army, like you said, that was suitable for war, man. Like they, they got to the, the national championships. Like if you know anything about basketball, getting to national championship, championships is a pretty big deal it's because hard, there's right? so many teams, right, within divisions all over the world you you got have you got to have a great record you get invited and things of that nature but mm-hmm. what did you think about like just that just being a disruptor and not a conformer to society you know because a lot of people have, are scared mm-hmm. i have uh two bits written down and after we talk about this i guess it could lead into the next thing he mentioned yep before it was before this the mentioning of um conformity but after the basketball story which was like the little story in between we could talk about that after this Okay. But I have written down social risk mm-hmm. is what he I think he calls the conformity. It's like those people willing to take a social risk, basically doing something society doesn't want to do or looks down upon or is frowned on or or just can't believe it will work. You know what I mean? Yeah. A perfect example. Honestly, he uses the examples of entrepreneurship as a very good way and segue into this. When you think of an entrepreneur. Who were they? They were people who looked at everything as it stood and said, nah, we could change this. Yep. We could do something different. Like they took a risk that society and the general populace wasn't willing to change, right? Mm-hmm. And changed it and flipped it on its head. And it's so funny. Like I find it really interesting to think like sometimes, you know, how some people hate on these people. You know what yeah. I mean? They're just like, they're envious. They're like the general populace in turn and go like, you can't do this. This isn't right. They do it and they go, oh, look at you making all money by exploiting X, Y, and Z and doing this, that, and the third. When you could have very well done the same exact thing, mm-hmm. you know? Like as much as as much as much um, sounding like a boomer, I hate TikTok, you know what I mean? Yeah. I like watching them. But like that whole notion of getting TikTok, you know, power to people who do it, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's like, it's just something you never thought of. Can't hate on it. Like, because I know I know people who who generally and genuinely hate on people who are famous doing whatever they do on on the internet. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's just an example of societal risk where it's like not doing what everyone else is doing and doing what you feel like you want to do and just going with that. Yeah. What I have written down for that, it's reasonably adapting to the world 
or making the world adapt to them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's and that's the point he really pushed. Like entrepreneurs, people who are different than those in general society, do things to make life easier for them. You know yeah. what I mean? They don't try to make things more difficult because going through the normal channels is difficult to them. You know? Right. And then that ties into his whole turning a disadvantage into an advantage. And he used the, the notion of people with dyslexia mm-hmm. where, you know, a lot of people with dyslexia, all the people he used and described in his, his book was they had the perceived disadvantage of dyslexia and how everyone around them just perceived dyslexia as a bad thing. The individual themselves, basically, instead of saying, if I can't read, right. I'm going to learn to listen, which is the example of the uh, the trial lawyer he gave, mm-hmm. which I resonate with a little bit. It's kind of like, you know, I'm not going to be a transactional guy, which is people who basically read and go through contracts and do the behind the scenes work versus on his feet, thinking on his feet in court, arguing things. You know what I mean? So that kind of notion of, you know, if I can't read, I'm going to fucking listen. If yeah. I can listen, I can speak. If I can memorize, I can know what I'm going through. I don't have to worry about whether or not somebody crossed out an I or dotted or like put a period in the right place and whether and or or is applicable at this point. I'm just going to argue my, everyone understands my valid point and recite the law. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's in a, I think that was a very, for me personally, it's a very compelling example of making, making what is perceived a disadvantage work to your advantage. You know what I mean? But I want to hear your opinions on that. I have another point to say on this, but I just want to hear your your thoughts on that. Whether you can, re- whether you related to any of those those stories that he he pushed off about the dyslexia as an advantage. Uh, I think, I think it's hard sometimes to look at your disadvantages, like you and myself, just to self reflect on our own disadvantages and say, "Hey, this has made us better." But I think right. more oftentimes than not, we we are better because of these disadvantages. And why do I say that? Because we're alive, right? If these disadvantages were so bad, we wouldn't be alive, and I, you know, or we wouldn't be thriving in any way. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like the battle of the fittest, right? It's just like, right. although we we have disadvantages, we make them work, man. And just like the lawyer, like you, I thought that was a really interesting in- story side of the story because, like you said, he was dyslexic. He couldn't really read well or anything like that, but he was a great listener as a result. And him being a great listener made him an amazing lawyer, and it disrupted like how law is traditionally done, right? Almost like the basketball coach. And uh, just, it's funny to see like how, just to think of, of the same story, two people can look at that same story and say something completely different, but he made it a, yep. a, a negative into a positive. And I really love that. I really love that. Right. So to, to I'll bring up the point I wanted to mention. So he, after all the talks of dyslexia, right? And mm-hmm. um, so the other story I resonated with a little bit was uh, the guy who, I forget what he did for a job or whatever. He hops in a taxi cab with this Wall Street trader. Yeah. And he's just like, and he fucking blatantly, he outright lies to the guy like, yeah, I know how to trade options. I could do that shit. That's, yeah. you know, I've been doing that all my life. And then he ends up getting a job. He ends up interviewing and he ends up making millions, millions of dollars. You know, he ends up being one of the best option traders in the world. And, but for that, so this ties into societal risk, but for the fact that he jumped into the ca- taxi cab and lied, you know, no, so, Nobody in their right mind would do something crazy like that. You know what I mean? The general population, no one would really take that leap of faith. You know what I mean? And I mean, I'm even speaking from my own perspective. I don't think I could do that. You know, 
I don't think I could just blatantly outright look the guy in the eye and just be like, yeah, I know how to do something I can't do. Although, you know, to a certain degree, you do. Mm-hmm. Every day. I think he just took a huge jump on that one. I was just listening. And I was when I was reading through, I was like, shit, would I do this? Could I do this? Like, I then the whole notion of what's right kind of starts playing into it. But that's yeah. not the point I was trying to make. Um, what he talks about is um, seeing these individuals with the dyslexia as a disadvantage now flipped into an advantage. The question was, he asked, well, now do you wish dyslexia upon your own kids? Like, what, now that you can see how a disadvantage can be turned into an advantage, right? Yeah. Would you want your kids to have this advantage, right? And I, personally, I would still, I'd say no, you know what I mean? Just because the 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 societal notion around it, like nothing nothing against anything, but it's kind of like I think everyone generally, even the um the individuals themselves, you know, this kind of goes back to the the thing we talked about earlier. You know, I don't want my kids to go through the same struggle as I did. You know, mm-hmm. you're not gonna wish dyslexia on anyone, you know, even no. though it's clearly it's been flipped into an advantage. But I think it's crazy because if you think about it, people people perceive wealth, right? People who are rich, you can look at being born into money as an advantage, having everything you ever wanted as an advantage. There's so many things that you can look at and say, that's an advantage. You know what I mean? Yeah. But what makes this, this perceived advantage now after listening and explaining how it can help you, right? What makes that different from having wealth, from being born into a good family, from having everything you ever needed? What makes this advantage anything different? You know Mm. what I mean? And I feel as though everyone would answer the same exact way. Just... No, I, I I wouldn't want to wish that on my own kids. I wouldn't want to wish that on my friends' kids. Like, no, like, but you would wish your kids were born into a wealthy family. Yeah. You would wish, you know, your friends prosper and make tons of money. You know what I mean? So it's it turns the conventional notion of what's an advantage? Why do we want advantages so much? You know what I mean? And I yeah. think that, like, the book really forces you to think about that. What, mm-hmm. what do you... Um. Yeah, I agree, man. It definitely makes me wonder, like, what things that I overlook that are advantages, right, quote-unquote, that may be hurting me. Um, and I can think, just off the top of my head, I can think of, of, of just a few things, like the ability for me to just go out and buy this poster behind me, right? Like, it kind of takes away the ambition a little bit because I can easily, okay, yeah, if I want it, let me go and get it. As opposed to, like, I think more of, like, when I was a kid, right, when it comes to certain stuff. Mm-hmm. It was, like, my mom and dad, they, they didn't have enough money for me to, especially my mom. When I was living with my mom, there was, it wasn't like, yeah, here's a hundred dollars. Go buy a poster. No, it was like, Hey, you, you, we don't even have $10 to eat for tonight. You talking about a poster? Like it wasn't even a question. So I guess my point is like some advantages that you have, you may not even realize that they're hurting you in a way, right? They're hurting your Mm -hmm. personality. They're hurting your drive, your ambition, whatever the case may be. But it's unfair to say that we, you know, like it is, like I said, it's just whatever cards you have that you're dealt, you kind of have to deal with it. Whether it's a good card or a bad card, right? You need a complete hand to win. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a good analogy as well. It's just like you might have some disadvantages, some advantages. You don't want to wish that upon your kids. Like dyslexia, honestly, I have a mild case of dyslexia, bro. It's not horrible. But in regards to numbers, I always flip and flop them when they're in my head. You know what I mean? Right. So although it's not like a big disadvantage for me, I wouldn't wish that upon a child of mine. 
but mm. it's inevitable they're going to have some disadvantages. You know what I mean? Like the, whether they'd be short, whether they'd be a little slower, whether they're they're lanky and they're not as athletic, whatever the case may be. I just want to foster an environment with my friends, my family, with you, with my children, where they understand it's okay to be at a disadvantage, but don't sit there and moat about it. Go and do something about it. You know what I mean? Go and flip right. it on its head. So on that on that note, I have I think I have a quote written down. It's um, it's being afraid of being afraid. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like if you're afraid of a disadvantage before, if you if you realize you have a disadvantage and you're already worried about how that might affect everything else around you, you're afraid of being afraid. Yeah. Right. You're afraid of taking the first step. You're afraid of taking the making the first move. You're afraid of things that you don't even know what you're afraid of. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's I think the book really tries to like hammer on you like listen a lot of this shit is psychological mm-hmm. you know your mind and your mental state really plays a big role in whether or not a disadvantage is an advantage and vice versa i mean with david and goliath back to the original story yeah. you know if you're a dude in the army lined up with tens of thousands of people and you're like five foot six uh, 180 pounds you're a solid warrior and you look across from you and they got a dude who's seven with a fucking big old john like ready to fucking whack your head off you're going to you know what i mean but you don't know what he's capable of you're just looking at these perceived advantages you know right. what i mean you're being afraid of being afraid you're fearful of things that you don't even know what you're fearful about exactly. and i think on on your note being being dealt with a hand right you might think it's a bad hand but you don't know what everyone else is holding. A perfect example. Do you play 13 at all? Yeah, Which is, yeah. That's one of my favorite games. Yeah, so it's of the, the, same, <laughs> the same thing. It's like you could think you have a shitty hand until you start playing the game. And next thing you know, you flip everything on its head. Yeah. You know? Because you don't know what somebody else has. And you don't know how the cards are spread out amongst everybody else. And until the game starts going, you know, the guy with the best hand, right, ends up losing sometimes. And yeah. it's, it's just, I think 13 is a very good notion. <laughs> of of what we're talking about of yeah. um the whole card notion it's you know somebody can have um so just for anyone listening uh 13 is like a vietnamese card game and basically the best card you can have is a two right and then the sweets um trump each other so basically if you have a, a two of spades it's trumped by two of clubs two of clubs is trumped by two of diamonds two of diamonds trumped by two of hearts and the 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 suits continue out throughout the whole thing but so the two of um, hearts is probably the best card you can have. That trumps virtually any single play card. And you might think just because you have the best and you, you should win. You know what I mean? That's a perceived advantage. I have the best card in the game. Like, I should be able to win this hand. Yeah. And sometimes you fucking lose. And, like, if you play enough, you know you will fucking lose. Yeah. And I just find that funny that we can uh, actually – it's a very common simple game and mm-hmm. i think that really describes this notion of advantages and disadvantages really really well yeah I and agree. just it's just how you play it like poker same thing you know how good your poker face is you can have you literally can have nothing mm-hmm. and you can just like psych out the other guy and it's just turning a disadvantage you know you basically got a fucking a three and a, a nine that what you're hoping for two pairs, maybe. Right. You know what I mean? So it's it's kind of interesting that you bring up the whole whole cards and hand being dealt kind of thing because this this notion can actually be pushed into like professional card games and all this other crap. Literally is, anything. Anything you think of. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? 
it, it could be the same way. Uh, there's something I want to get your perspective on because I had a very – I was conflicted about this part of the book where he talked about being a big fish in a little pond versus a little fish in a big pond. Beautiful. Yep. You want to oh. describe it a little bit? Yeah, and yeah. you can so, go on about it. Uh, great example he gave. There was a girl choosing colleges. And she was very interested in science. Um, I don't, I don't, I want to say chemistry or something like that. And um, she was choosing between colleges, and she had many options, whether it be a smaller college, a larger college, whatever the case may be. However, she ended up going with the larger college, and this would be an example of being a little fish in a big pond full of like different fish, right? So, like, if you imagine a big pond full of fish, this is like this big college. So. She goes to the college and she kind of like funks out because she just doesn't have the support she needs. She doesn't have the drive and the motivation anymore because it's so difficult. And she was looking around at these other big fish, like these other fish in the pond, and she's not no longer the big fish, right? She was like a really smart girl. So that goes to say, I really enjoy the fact that he went through this, talking about the big fish, little pond, as well as being a, or a big fish in a big pond or a little fish in a big pond, one of the two, right? I hate being the one of many fish, right? I would prefer mm -hmm. in every instance, no matter what instance you ask me, to be by myself in, a, in a, a little pond, a big fish in a little pond, so to speak, right? Where there's less people, where, there's, where I control the competition with myself. It's more like with myself, right? whereas opposed to it's a lot of people and a lot of you know, factors that, that kind of can hinder your growth, hinder your confidence, you know? So what do you think about that? So. Yeah, I actually found this concept very interesting because I, I kind of battle back and forth with it. So just to give a little bit more context, so she, the the girl in the story, um, she had to choose between her number one college and her number two college. Mm -hmm. One being um, the University of Maryland, which is her number two college, which is a great school by a lot of like standards. But she was also faced with getting accepted into Brown, which is an Ivy League school. Everyone understands that the Ivy League schools are just built different, you know, mm. the prestige. So this is the whole notion of it. It's like the big pond carries a lot of prestige, a lot of name value, a lot of wow. You know what I mean? While the little pond, although it doesn't have the same wow factor, you get to stand out more. You know what I mean? And this kind of goes to the notion of um, what's the benefit of having a brand name versus a generic brand name? You know what I mean? Yeah. To certain extents, I find it really interesting because she thought, you know, being at Brown was the best decision she could have made because she's filled with intellectual peers. She's a smart person. And she's like, you know, I can do this. This is great. This is where I want to be. Back to the whole what I've been mentioning, the whole entire theme throughout this book is how different things around you can affect your psychological uh, mindset. So in this in this example that he gave, the girl was basically always smart straight a student and she got put into basically a a pool or, or a pond with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people just like her mm. you know what i mean so it becomes you're just another one of the numbers you're just lost in the masses and it really what i think what really ends up making people drop off is just this I guess if you want to call it self-reflection or negative reflection on yourself where you start perceiving people around you doing better than you yep. and you're like, but I used to be that person. I used to be good. Like and you start doubting yourself and that own self-doubt is what really like screws you over. 
mm-hmm. right? Versus in a small pond where you're just like, you know, you're the big fish. You set the standard. You set the benchmark. You do what you got to do, and you shine, basically. You know what I mean? You're like the brightest star on the darkest night. Yep. And it's funny because he brings in statistics to yeah. kind of prove this notion that the the bottom half – so say if you're a B student in in the big pond, right? And you're an A student in the small pond. He brought out statistics that kind of like – I forget what metric he was using or what the exam he was using as the metric. I think it was mathematics. Mm-hmm. Mathematics on the SATs. Your SAT scores on the math section, right? The bottom – so he broke it into thirds. The top third, the middle third, and the bottom third on each each level. So the top third on the small pond, right, equals – the same exact, they got all got the same exact score as the bottom third in the big pond. But because you're in the big pond, you're looking at the top third of the big pond going, shit, why can't I be like that? I thought I was like that. I thought I was the big dog, right? And flip back in, in, in the small pond context, you're like, you know, I'm the big dog. When in actuality, if you take this, the big fish out of the small pond and put him into the big pond, he's just another fish. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just another small fish. And I just thought that was really, really interesting. And it's kind of like a reality call to people, right? Yeah. And some people can face reality and be fine. And other people can get smacked upside the head with reality and just fucking flip over. Um, what I related to was um, something you hear throughout law school is um, we all made it to law school. Everybody in law school is smart. You know what I mean? That's a very... Um, that's a notion that you hear very often. It's like, it doesn't matter. We're all at this law school. That means we all are equally as smart. We all made it to this point. We can't be all stupid, right? So that the notion of little fish, big pond, and big big um, big um pond, little fish kind of resonates in that sense where you can have some self-doubt when you're put into a situation where everyone is just as smart as you, you know, mm-hmm. where everyone technically is, is your equal. But at that point, it's just, you know, some people are better than other people. This I think you can relate to this one a little bit since it's the basketball reference I'm about to make. It's mm-hmm. kind of like it's kind of like comparing everybody in the NBA. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the 13th man on the bench and fucking LeBron James. Obviously, LeBron James is that guy, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the bench, like using that, the bench is the the big pond. You know the the league. The NBA is the big pond. You know, yep. and the G League is the little pond. Do you want to be? You know the star of the G league and just, you know, eat down there and then get called up and sit on the bench. You know what I mean? I think that that's a really good illustration of this is where once you make it to the league, you're in the top 1% of the 1% of athletes. You know what I mean? That's it. You've made it. It doesn't matter whether you're the 13th man on the roster, whether you signed a a 10 day contract or not. And then you take that person, you throw them out into the YMCA with me and you, you know, we're getting smoked. You know what I mean? And we're looking. It's just so funny because the average, uh, the average Joe will look at something like that and be like, "Oh, like he's ass. Yeah. How can you miss that? You're trash." You know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. that notion of the big fish, little pond, little pond, big fish, and just using the NBA as a an example is a really highlights that notion. What do you think? I, I think it does. Um, I think in any example you can think of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it just kind of ties in with the information that we said earlier about conformity. Because in a sense, yep. if you are a little fish in a big pond, you are conforming to society, right? A society. Whereas mm-hmm. when you're when you step away from that and you're in a small, uh, uh, you're a big fish in a smaller pond. It's you kind of set the bar, 
right? There's no societal uh, restrictions. There's nothing like that. I think another example that the book brought up, speaking about this, is the artist in Italy, um, where there was like a, a, a big society of art and artists who, if you didn't get selected by this group of artists, you kind of were like, you weren't shit in art in Italy. And that's a big deal, yeah. right? So then they started their own thing and they kind of blew up their own thing, you know? And it, I feel like, I don't know, man. I, I tend to stick on the outliers. Like, I really learned uh, at, a, at a young age not to conform. Whereas mm-hmm. I seen myself conforming. I was like, oh, I don't feel this way. Why am I sitting here talking about this stuff if I don't feel this way? Why am I, like, beating myself up because I'm not going to every holiday and every party? Like, why, why am I doing that? Whereas right. I feel way more comfortable when I'm like, no, I need to focus. I need to be disciplined, yada, yada, yada. Whatever the case may be, the the main point is like, you know, it just, in my opinion, I, I, I tend to resonate more with the big fish, little pond, as opposed to big pond, little fish. Mm-hmm. That's funny because, so I don't know if you had the same example. I've like growing up Asian American, right? I feel as though everyone had some sort of instant of this of, being compared to a sibling or a cousin or a brother or like you know somebody you're being compared to you know your uncle's auntie's second cousin's nephew or something like you're there's always somebody to like stack up against you and i think that's that notion the the idea of conformity kind of is instilled very early on right you got to be like him like why can't you be like her or like what's wrong like why can't you attain a certain standard and I don't know whether it's just an Asian thing because I, it's very prevalent in like Asian communities. Like we're getting compared left and right to whoever and whatever, yeah. you know. And it's that notion of the artist, like you were saying, if you're being compared to freaking the best of the best on every evaluation, you know that sucks the life out of you. Like yeah. it really demoralizes you. Like uh, on the artist example, somebody committed suicide after a certain point when they were like, you know, they didn't select me for the second time. Like it's over for me. Like I can't, I, I'm not an artist. I have no talent and yeah. you commit suicide. So that's kind of like, if you're always, if you're always in the big pond, you know, being compared to the, the biggest and the brightest and the best of the best every single time, it takes a mental toll on you. And some people thrive in those kind of situations. Some people come out on top. Some people use that as an external motivator and, right back to a whole more of the story turning a disadvantage into an advantage you know what i mean you're being your perceived disadvantage in that situation is you know i'm not better than them right so how do i get better than them i'm not doing well so how do i get like how do i get better how do i hone my crap how do what what method or means do i need to take to be the best version of myself and using the artist example some of, them, some of them realize contemporary art really is going to make a wave and a splash in this community. You know what? Mm-hmm. The hell with it. I'm going to make my own community. I'm going to do my own thing. You know, and that's kind of pivoting and going into the smaller pond as the big fish. Or like, so how do you know if you're a going to be a big fish in a small pond anyway? You know what I mean? So it's all about mindset, realistically. Like you can jump down to the small pond and next thing you know, you're just another small fish. And then you can just salt and just like beat yourself up and just honestly weigh yourself down, even though you're supposed to be the big fish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which I guess ties me to the the ending of the book where he talks about the um, the two different families where the father lost his daughter to a robbery and he implemented what California called the the three strike rule. So basically, if you if you were arrested for three times on the third time, you do life. Right. 
which led to massive incarceration and that got like you know flipped out and overturned and thrown out but the other family was where her daughter was you know kidnapped tied up thrown in a shed and she starved to death instead of pursuing radical route right she mourned she grieved she accepted and she tried to move on while in the other situation the guy to this point is still mourning. He hasn't accepted the fact and he's looking at society for the answer and saying, why aren't you guys helping me? You know what I mean? So that's an example. I feel as though that could be an example of a, a big fish going through a small pond and just soaking in the result again and not achieving what he wants to achieve and just falling into like disparity and despair and kind of like sitting on himself and just kind of falling out of it. I think really now the more and more I think about this, I think the book really highlights the whole notion of mental well-being, understanding your place, not in society, but your place and being comfortable in your own skin to push whatever boundaries you want to push. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, I would definitely agree with that, man. I didn't even think about that as a, yeah, I didn't think about that as a topic for the book, but you're you're absolutely right. There's definitely some self-reflection tools in this that help you, especially if you're reading from a disadvantage point, right? Like let's say if you did have mm -hmm. dyslexia or some, some other uh, ail that you would say is, is a disadvantage, you definitely right. read it saying, Hey, this is not the end of the world for me, you know? But I feel like oftentimes people who have those disadvantages, they realize, Hey man, like they're yeah. still living, you know, like they've made it mm -hmm. this far, man. It's, it's just a good reminder. Like, Hey, you're going to have some ails. You're going to have some, some things that maybe d deter you from being, the best you, but you got what you got. You just got to make it happen. Right. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that kind of like the people who are in the worst situations always seem to manage to find the brightest outcome of, you know, the brightest yep. light out of it, which pivot back to uh, last week's episode when we talked about the uh, Ikigai and the, and the lady with the paralyzed son who wanted to kill herself, right? Yeah. You think about it, it's the son who's paralyzed saying, bro, I have my whole life to live. Like, I yeah. got my shit set. Like, relax. Like, he's seeing the positive in a situation, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the person who has everything is looking and focusing on the negative of the situation. And, you know, as Ikigai went on, like, that kind of notion flipped on its head. I think it, it resonates here, too. It's like, it's interesting where you, depends on your vantage point, you know what I mean? Yeah, And it's how, I feel as though people, some people with advantages don't even realize they have advantages. So while reading this, you might not even see your advantage is an advantage, right? But it's mm -hmm. like something you mentioned earlier. You know, you could be well off. You could have the ability to go buy something you want today. That's an advantage compared to a lot of people. You yeah. can go and do whatever you want today. That's an like, you know, you can go hang out with your friends, you know, while some other people, I have to stay home and babysit my three my three younger siblings. Like, yep. it, it, the smallest things can be perceived as an advantage and a disadvantage, you know what I mean? For sure, brother. So. I just find that really interesting that like that whole notion, like I'd never, I didn't even read this as a, a reflect, think about what you got going on kind of book. I just thought it was kind of a, you know, here's a, here's B let's duke it out. You know, this versus that. I think I have some of that written down somewhere. Let yep. me see. I have, this was an interesting on this. Um, I think it's capitalization learning and compensation learning, I think is what he called it. Right. Okay. So did you did you uh, glean anything from that? Um, can you repeat the two types of learning again, just so I make sure I answer the right one? I think it's so it's capitalization learning, and I think it's compensation learning. I think because I have comp written down, so I assume it's compensation. Right, right. 
I don't remember. So, if I'm honest, man, I don't really remember the the difference between the two. Okay. Let so me you, let me expand yeah, you, on it then. Yep. See if it jogs anything, right? So comp like compensation learning is learning because you have to, learning out of necessity versus learning because you have the ability. You know yeah. what I mean? It's kind of like saying, "Oh, I'm naturally gifted at fucking singing, so I'm doing something that I enjoy and capitalizing on my ability," mm-hmm. versus you know, I fucking can't read. So I need to fucking learn how to read or like, you know, I, I need to grow up a lot quicker. I don't have a father figure in my life. So I have to grow up a lot quicker kind of situation where you have to learn things that you wouldn't otherwise learn at a certain point in time. You know what I mean? Out of necessity, like the example he used were, were the individuals with dyslexia where they had to learn to compensate, you know what I mean? Compensate for their disadvantage by learning how to sharpen their hearing and become a better listener or, you know, learning how to trade options when they didn't know how to trade options and that kind of situation. What do you, what do you, what do you think about that whole notion? So it, I think on the one side where you're learning something that you might not would have, you might not have learned at this moment in time that, that like requires a certain part of you that is powerful. You know what I mean? Like it, it, you Mm -hmm. can't be, you can't be scared. You don't have time to, you just got to learn it. And I feel like oftentimes those kind of learning situations help you grow the most. Whereas the opposite mm-hmm. side, it's like at, le- at your leisure. You choose when you want right. to learn it. So, for instance, like, I don't know, me, if I wanted to learn the drums or something, it's not that I need, I don't need to learn the drums today to survive, you know? Mm-hmm. But so it, it might be more of a disadvantage than an advantage learning in that way. Whereas, like you said, people with dyslexia or whatever the case may be, um, let's say, I don't know, they had to learn how to make a fire to like warm themselves up today. Like, yo, I got to warm myself up today. So I need to learn how to do this. So I think there's just a different approach at learning. One is more like leisure. One is more like convenience. Whereas the other one is iron sharpening iron, right? Like you need this. It's it's a skill set that's going to make you a better person. It's going to draw more out of you from a, from a, like a bravery and a courage perspective. So I, I tend to favor that. Although it's it's oftentimes like stuff like that, for instance, like uh, he was mentioning in the book, people who lost parents, you you could not possibly, I could not possibly know that feeling because I haven't lost a parent. Mm-hmm. But if I were to lose a parent, I know it would have to require me to learn things and move in a certain way because I lost those parents that would better me, you know? Maybe it destroys me, but for the most part, it's, it's going to make you a better, well-rounded person. So I guess that's why I prefer that learning method because it's like there's no excuses. You just got to do it to survive. Gotcha. Would yeah, you say never, the same? I, didn't even, I, I kind of agree with everything you said. I didn't even think of the other means as a, a leisure learning kind of thing. I like I looked at it, I guess, from the way he was trying to describe it mm-hmm. as a um, building on what you already have. Okay. You know what I mean? One way is like you don't have it and you got to learn it to have it versus you got it. And then you just you're just working on it because you identify that as what you like. I think the example he gave was Tiger Woods, where Tiger Woods enjoyed swinging a golf club at a young age. Like he just had fun doing it, yeah. and he just realized he had some talent for it, and he just kept on doing it. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know. I didn't think of it as like a leisure. That's interesting, actually. Now that uh, now that you bring it up, yeah. being comfortable in a position and have being in that position to actually leisurely learn something you're good at. That actually makes a lot of sense now if you really like flush it out. Because, yeah. like, say if you, you could have all the talent in the world to do something, but if you don't have the means to sit down and hone and learn it, like, that's not – like, if you're too busy worrying about surviving, you don't have the 
time to work on your vocal pitch to become, you know, the next Mariah Carey or whatever exactly. it may be. Although you probably, that which leads to, you know, a ton of undiscovered artists right, in the world, right. you know, like, or a ton of people who are good at something, but they just don't have the same means, time and ability to leisurely build their craft. I, I like that. I like yeah. that. That's it's what I was getting when I was reading that, especially when he was saying like, just talking about the underdog and how mm -hmm. oftentimes like hard work, smart work out, mm -hmm. outweighs talent, right? And I'm sure there's a quote for it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, hard work, if you're talented, but you don't put the work in, you're, you're, it, it doesn't amount to right. anything, you know? It's just potential. Yeah, man. Yeah. So do you want to start to, is there any other points that you wanted to make that maybe we haven't gone over or do you want to kind of start wrapping our, uh, our, our summary up? Um, we could start wrapping, we could wrap up. I have um, a quote that we can leave on, which, you know, touches on something. I think we kind of alluded about the whole discussion of this was the whole the, the discussion of, um, I think the whole war between Northern Ireland and, um, their church and religious beliefs and the uh, the boroughs of New York, which kind of falls into the same thing. So I think we could package this with a quote I have. Yeah. And we can like, we just wrap up there. So it's force without legitimacy leads to defiance. Mm. Right. So how I took this as was the more you try to force something up, like the more you try to force an ideal on something that's already broken, the more resistance you're going to have. You know what I mean? The more you try to force yourself to do something that you don't seem to think is right, the more resistance you'll have. That tying into you know societal risks and doing unconventional things, challenging the norm. You know, you can challenge the norm all you want, but if there's no rational basis for you to actually pursue and challenge it, I feel as though you're going to be met with force. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's kind of like one of those situations. You know, force without legitimacy. You know, doing something without a reason is going to lead to some pushback, you know? And it's like, that's just a notion we all have to kind of overcome. Or even in the most, like, simplest sense is like, when you do things that society or the general populace doesn't agree with, you're going to be faced with defiance. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? People are going to look, people are going to point, people are going to talk down, people are going to push back. And I think the overcoming and identifying, you know, the legitimacy of your action to yourself, right, will help you overcome that defiance, help you jump over that hurdle and kind of push forward. What do you think? Yeah, I agree, bro. Uh, I don't, it's funny that we, we go through this and we don't usually have like disagreements. You know what I mean? Similar, yeah, we just have like different perspectives, but I, I really do agree right. with what you just said too. It's kind of funny because going into this, I, I, I could have swore we might have disagreed somewhere or we right. might be able to like argue about something, but the more we talk about it, I mean, yeah, you brought up a, a couple different perspectives and same and me too. And we just kind of like said, oh, that shit makes sense. Yeah. Which is, I think, the, the whole purpose of doing something like this. It's, you know, you can read something, identify it as one way. But as you start talking about it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. You're actually mm -hmm. right. Uh, without even bothering to argue the point or, or like run in a different direction or do anything crazy. Yeah. But, yeah. So, all right. I mean, I guess unless you have a, do you have any quotes or anything you want to leave everybody with? Or anything I do, crazy man. There was one quote. I, there's always. I'm always give you at least one quote that I resonate with. <laughs> this is the one here. It says, um, "The reasonable man adopts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adopt the world to himself." And mm -hmm. dude, every day, man, I be feeling like that sometimes. You know what I mean? And just tying mm -hmm. into the to the book, 
just stand out, man. Be yourself. Don't worry about like trying to be everybody else, trying to be like other people. Mm -hmm. You're made the way you're made with your mm -hmm. ales, your you know your your abilities for a reason, man. Just make the best mm -hmm. out of your hand, dude. That's that's what I'm gonna right. leave off with. Just make the best out of the hands you're dealt. The rest is history, man. You know. Right. Don't don't worry about what everybody else around you got going on. Just worry about what you got going on. Always, brother. Always. That's All right. It. Dude, we're gonna uh, bend the wheel. Rec uh, recommend the book or not? Uh personally, although I so just based on the fact that I sort of enjoyed the book and didn't enjoy the book, yeah, I'm not gonna recommend. So I'm not gonna recommend it like Yigi to everyone. Yep, I feel as though it's a, it's one of those books if you're dealing with an internal conflict, if you think you're like what you were saying, if you read it from a point of disadvantage. So if you feel as though you're like lost somewhere or you you think you're stuck. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's who I would recommend read this book. It'll give you kind of a different perspective on what I think of. You know, you're probably stuck because of a disadvantage or you're stuck because you're perceiving society as against you or you're you're just trying to get over that last hurdle. I think this book will just maybe reinvigorate or ignite a fire under those kind of people. But mm. I think for everyone, I don't think everyone should read it. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't think it's one of those books where it has a lot of general knowledge where you can mouth it to whatever experience you want. I feel as though you have to be in a certain mindset or perspective to go into this book. Agreed. What about you? I would say the same. I um I wouldn't recommend this book as like a life-changing book or anything like that. However, perception is always different. So like you said, if somebody is in a position where they feel maybe they're the, the David against a Goliath, oftentimes, if they right. feel that their ailments are holding them back, this is a good book mm -hmm. for people who lack... um. I guess like appreciation for all of their either shortcomings or or advantages. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if you if you yeah. just have a um, if you just need some some help finding some disadvantages or advantages that you may be overlooking, just give it a little read through. You know what I mean? But I definitely wouldn't exp uh, I wouldn't recommend this to everybody. It's a little fluffier yeah. than than most people like. But um, it was a good book. Don't get me yeah. wrong. It wasn't a bad book at all. Right, just, it did just drag not for on everybody. A bit. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. I think there's the the fact that it did drag on a little bit, and there's the only clarity I finally got out of it was when we actually sat down and discussed it. You know what I mean? So yeah. for the fact that you can't glean real clarity unless you really, really, really take a deep dive into it, like, and you like split every like line and verse and chapter and highlight, like, I feel as though you might, you may or may like, you actually might miss something, and you just might be like, oh, this is. This is boring. I think at a certain point, it does get a little boring and hard to like follow and stay with it. So just because of that, I, I really don't like, again, depend if you're lacking self-confidence, maybe, or you really just need a something to help pick you back up. If you're going through a dark time, I think this would be a very good book because it talks about both perspectives. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Those who are struggling and make it and those who are struggling and don't make it. And it kind of puts you in a perspective. But, you know, what the fuck do we know? <laughs> Read the right. book if you feel like it. <laughs> right, right, right. So if you heard anything that maybe resonated with you, you know, in regards right. to any of the stories that we brought up, hey, just give it a try. Or maybe even look at the, the summary and pick a chapter that you might like, you know. That way you save right. some time, too, so you're not reading the whole book. Right. And uh, if so you guys do end up reading the book, let us let us know what you guys think. Of course. Always. Like, guys, anytime that you read some of these books. Another. Yep. Yeah. Give love us your opinions, even if they're different from our perspectives. Maybe we missed a point or something of that nature. Hey, it's just let's right. open the conversation. Mm -hmm. All right, baby. So let's do this. Um, the circle Wheel yeah? spin. Yes, sir. I'm gonna put it on top of the stream. I'm gonna share it with you and then put it on top of the stream. All right. All right. 
Sunday sit downs. So we sh you should be able to see on your screen too, yeah, Tom? Yeah, I see it. Perfect. So uh, I'm going to shuffle here a bunch of times first and foremost just so we get a good little mix, you know what I mean? And then mm -hmm. let's do it. Do you want to do another one? I have a real estate one on here, but I I, I don't know if you want to uh, real, read a real estate one. You know what I mean? So I can remove that. Maybe that was one of the ones that we missed in regards to real right. estate. Let's do that then. Rerun. So right. I didn't see the wheel spin. So I see, I see me and you. Ah, I'm not sure why that's the case. Okay, so here, let me do this. I'll do something else. All right. I will stop sharing screen. Okay, you can still see and hear me? Perfect. Yeah, I can see and hear you fine. Yeah, I guess there's a couple of real estate books that we left on there from my from my original list. Um, right. Which is okay. We can remove that. If you guys have any recommendations while we're going through this, guys, definitely just give us a comment or a, a, a DM, whatever the case may be. We're interested in all types of books, whether it be fiction, mm -hmm. nonfiction, that uh, you guys would think would be a great read, a must read, I would say. Or All something right. you don't feel like reading, but you think is interesting, and you want somebody to kind of maybe read it. Exactly. And give you a little perspective. All right, I see it. You see it now? Yep. Okay, I'm going to do that shuffle again. You still see it, right? Yep, it's still moving. Perfect. All right. What are we working with? What are we working with? Oh, Seth Speaks. I've never heard of that book. Nor have I. So, so we're going to figure it out, right? All Seth right. Speaks. Um, right. Yeah. Next week, guys. This week, we're going to be breaking down Seth Speaks. This was the legacy, the legacy liftoff with Tom and Steve. I hope you guys have a great one and you guys enjoyed yourselves. Tom, it was a pleasure, my boy. Likewise, brother. See you again next Sunday. Yes, See sir. Everybody. Seth Speaks, man. Have a good one, brother. All right, man. All right, guys.